0: This podcast is brought to you by Podcast Nation.
1: Gosh, this is like Real Housewives of Fiber. And there's like, you know, lots of kind of influencers and whatnot making claims about the impact of these high fiber products and just fiber kind of generally. And I was like, this is kind of wild because, you know, in 2022, we hear bad things about fiber, but it's usually from people doing like a carnivore diet and some right. bro that listen to like Joe Rogan or whatever. But this is like... Uh, Not what I was expecting.
0: And when I heard that someone with this dietary plan was being attacked on social media or that there was these claims that fiber was killing people, I was so shocked because given the landscape of different dietary paradigms out there that cause harm, this was shocking to me considering that it really aligns with a lot of our dietary guidelines and recommendations. Welcome to Wellness, Fact Versus Fiction. I'm Dr. Danielle Bilardo, and I'm a cardiologist who loves evidence-based medicine and nutrition science. But as a millennial, I've watched endless wellness fads take over social media. It's my mission to get to the bottom of things by bringing on the top expert physicians and scientists to help us determine what is fact versus fiction when it comes to your health. It's time to leave the pseudoscience behind and become empowered when it comes to our wellness. Hi, everyone. Welcome back to wellness fact versus fiction. And I am so excited today. We have a fantastic episode because we have Dr. Kevin Klatt, who is back to talk about all things fiber. If you follow me on social media, or if you've listened to the podcast before, you probably already know Dr. Klatt. He is a research scientist and instructor at UC Berkeley and a consultant clinical dietitian. He actually is a dietitian for many of my patients. His research broadly investigates nutrient metabolism, signaling, and requirements using preclinical models and controlled human intervention studies, with special emphasis on one carbon nutrient and fatty acids. In addition to his research, Dr. Clack serves as the inaugural young career editor at the American Journal of Clinical Nutrition. He also has a fantastic Instagram and Twitter presence where he has some very hilarious commentary on evidence-based nutrition at Casey Klatt on all mediums. Welcome, Dr. Klatt.
1: Thank you for having me back. It was uh, fun to be back.
0: So today, Kevin and I are going to talk about a topic that over the last week we've had a lot of discussion about, which is These fiber feuds that everyone has been stirring about because of a recent podcast that's been in the top of iTunes and Spotify called Bed Up, which discusses a large case. We'll get into some of the details about a registered dietitian named Tanya Zuckerbrot. And it involves an influencer who has shared various posts about dietary fiber and plant fibers and various different parts of how fiber can be harmful um, throughout the podcast you will see if you've listened to fed up already there's various claims we're going to get into them and discuss them but Kevin and I are here to discuss fiber and we're going to discuss this case and this topic and this controversy from a scientific standpoint Kevin and I have absolutely no dog in this fight. We are literally just here to discuss the scientific evidence because we are huge fans of fiber and we love science. And it's really interesting because when we heard there was controversy, when I heard there was a registered dietitian who was being attacked for, uh, she essentially has a company Tanya Zuckerbrot, it's called F Factor, we'll get into the details of it. But the company promotes um, largely a high fiber diet and she has protein powders that are high fiber, high protein. And when I heard that someone with this dietary plan was being attacked on social media or that there was these claims that fiber was killing people, I was so shocked because given the landscape of different dietary paradigms out there that cause harm, this was shocking to me, considering that it really aligns with a lot of our dietary guidelines and recommendations. And so I, my interest had peaked. Kevin, what about you? When did you hear about this?
1: I had a friend text me and was just like, have you heard about this new podcast Fed Up? And I was actually confused because I think there's like a Netflix documentary called Fed Up. And so I was like, oh, is this the same thing? And she was like, no, it's this whole like big debate about this like product line with it's high in fiber and cause sort of centered around a dietary plan pushing a high fiber diet and it's like supposedly causing all this harm and like killing people and my friend was like i'm really skeptical and my is a dietitian so i took a listen to the first episode i still haven't even completed the whole thing and, you know it's coming off as like gosh this is like real housewives of fiber and there was like you know lots of kind of influencers and whatnot making claims about the impact of these high fiber products and just fiber kind of generally and i was like this is kind of wild because you know in 2022 we hear bad things about fiber but it's usually from people doing like a carnivore diet and some bro that listened to, like, Joe Rogan or whatever. But this is, like, uh, not what I was expecting.
0: I agree. I was very shocking. And you and I were both so surprised. You had actually told me about this podcast. And at first, I hadn't listened to it. And then I listened to all the episodes. And I was shocked by the claims made about fiber. And so it caused you and I to do some investigation into these products. I'll give you guys details into this case. And we are strictly speaking from a scientific standpoint in this podcast. We are not going to discuss it from a legal standpoint, although I will read you some details from the case because we do want to discuss some of the uh, allegations, essentially, that are made and why we both believe they're unlikely, given the scientific evidence. And we really do want to explain this from a scientific standpoint. You know, I woke up that weekend to a gazillion messages from my followers who were so freaked out. They were either scared about eating fiber or they were scared that fiber was going to cause harm. They were scared that eating uh, their protein powders that have fiber in them. You know, lots of people I know use uh, protein powders that are high in fiber, like Huel, which even I use Huel. I love it. There was a lot of fear and so many messages. And I figured, You know, we should just do a podcast on this and just make sure we deep dive into what's going on and give an objective viewpoint just based on the scientific evidence. And so, this is a reminder that this podcast is for general informational purposes only. It does not constitute the practice of medicine or dietetics or professional healthcare services, including the giving of medical advice. There's no doctor patient relationship formed, but the use of this information, the content of this podcast is not intended substitute professional medical advice. You should constantly seek the advice and guidance of your physician and healthcare provider. This is going to be a discussion of the scientific evidence broadly. And we're just going to deep dive into the science of fiber. So I'm just going to give everyone a brief overview of the case in case you haven't heard fed up yet, this podcast. So it's about Tanya Zuckerbrot. So she's a registered dietitian and creator of something called the F Factor Diet, which is a dietary program. It's focused on high fiber foods with lean protein. From the F Factor website, it states that the F Factor program recommends 35 grams of fiber for women and 38 grams of fiber for men, which ensures fiber needs are met the program also emphasizes that individuals should obtain the majority of their fiber intake through whole foods, including fruits, vegetables, whole grains, nuts, seeds, legumes. And if you've listened to my podcast before, you follow me on social media, you're well aware that this actually aligns with the recommendations from all major medical organizations, which is why Kevin and I were both so intrigued. How could this dietitian be accused of all of these claims. It just seemed so scary. And so we had to deep dive into it, which which we do. And to reiterate, I just want to read the position statement on the Academy of Nutrition and Dietetics on health implications of dietary fiber, which states that the minimum intake of fiber is 25 grams for adult women, 38 grams for adult men. This is based on research demonstrating protection against coronary heart disease. The mean intake of dietary fiber in the United States is 17 grams per day, With only 5% of the population needing adequate intake. Populations that consume more dietary fiber have less chronic disease. Higher intakes of dietary fiber reduce the risk of developing several chronic diseases, including cardiovascular disease, type 2 diabetes, some cancers, and has been associated with lower body weights. So, so far with everything, you know, you've learned about what this diet program recommends. And with what I have researched about Tanya Zuckerbrot, this is really consistent and in line with our major medical organization recommendations. So among other things, the company manufactures high fiber protein powders and protein bars for customers that follow the F-factor diet. Okay, so now we get into the controversy. So an Instagram is being sued for defamation by the CEO and founder of Tanya Zuckerbrot and F-Factor. And I also just want to note that I've only known about this program and Tanya for a week. And I've done lots of Google searches looking into her program and the F-Factor program. And even when she speaks on the news, a lot of what she discusses literally is similar dietary recommendations, a high fiber diet that focuses a lot on fruits, vegetables, whole grains, legumes. That we all recommend. And so it really broke my heart to read this case and see that there were these claims and also, you know, misinformation that was being spread about fiber and claims made against her. Because in a day where we have so many dietary paradigms that are spreading so much misinformation, like Kevin mentioned, you know, you'd expect this coming from the carnivore diet groups or from, you know, the gundry anti-lectin groups. But You know, there's so many dietary paradigms out there that are harmful, and this one really is consistent with what all major medical organizations recommend. So the details about the suit were not, of course, as I mentioned, this is not a legal podcast. I just am presenting the information for anyone that's not familiar with it, and so we can get into the science. The plaintiff, who is Tanya Zuckerbrot and F-actor, claims the influencer published over 4,500 false Defamatory and harassing statements beginning in July 2020. This case is filed in the Supreme Court of the state of New York. From the filing, which is available for anyone to read online, and we're going to get into these statements. It says that since the beginning of her campaign against F Factor and Zuckerbrot, Gellis, I guess that's the name of the influencer, has published numerous outlandish, false, and defamatory statements about the F Factor diet and F Factor products, including the following. Gellis falsely stated that the F-factor diet and products are unsafe and cause people substantial emotional and physical harm. Gellis falsely stated that she had evidence that someone died as a result of consuming the F-factor products. Falsely stated that she had evidence that the F-factor products cause a woman to miscarry a pregnancy. Falsely stated that F-factor encouraged pregnant women to ingest at unsafe levels arsenic and a product called guar gum four times a day. Falsely stated that the F-factor product contains high levels of arsenic and therefore the products are unsafe. Falsely stated that she had evidence the F-factor powder caused a heart attack. That one specifically, Kevin, hearing a high fiber diet caused a heart attack. I was like, me and Kevin both were like, this is wild, but we'll get into the science. Um, Continues. Falsely stated that the F-factor products destroy the intestinal lining of those who consume the products. Falsely stated that she had evidence that the F-factor diet causes eating disorders and crippling effects on mental health. Falsely states that she has evidence the F-factor diet products cause severe gastrointestinal problems. Falsely stated the F-factor products cause severe damage to users' colons. Falsely stated the F-factor products cause severe gastrointestinal pain that requires hospitalization. Falsely stated that the F-factor products cause hernias. Falsely stated that she had evidence that the F-factor powder causes anxiety and panic attacks, and falsely stated that the F-Factor products contains an unsafe ingredient known as guar gum, and therefore the F-Factor products are unsafe. So per documentation, the court has stated that Tanya Zucker brought an F-Factor. This is word for word from the documentation that says, the uh, plaintiff states viable claims for defamation and product disparagement. They sufficiently allege that Gellis made or republished false statements of actual malice, that is, with knowledge of their falsity or with reckless disregard of whether they were false. Although the First Amendment gives Gellis broad freedom to express her thoughts and opinions, vulgar or otherwise, she does not have legal immunity to publish false factual information about people or products under the gauzy cloak of being authentic and raw. Of course, whether some or all of her statements were indeed false is a fact question, that cannot be decided on this motion. So what this means is that the lawsuit has moved forward, is now in discovery. And so essentially this influencer had been sharing what she claims alleges are individual's claims about these products and their harm. And so you may be wondering, okay, so what is in these products? So I already told you about the diet, right? So we already agree that the dietary paradigm in itself, recommending 35 grams of fiber per day and obtaining the majority of your fiber intake through whole foods, including fruits, vegetables, whole grains, nuts, seeds, and legumes, this is consistent with what I just read to you from the position statement of the American Academy of Nutrition and Dietetics. So then you may be thinking, well, what is in these powders that that's alleging that people are dying from these powders? So this is what Kevin and I are going to get into the science. So the S-factor protein powder with whey contains organic whey protein concentrate, partially hydrolyzed guar gum, sunflower, lecithin. The S-factor plant-based protein powder contains pea and rice protein fermented with shiitake, mycelia, and partially hydrolyzed guar gum, which is sun fiber. And then there's F-factor protein bars that contain soluble um, corn fiber, brown rice protein concentrate, peanut flour, chicory root fiber, glycerin, peanuts, peanut butter, peanut oil, palm kernel oil, sea salt, almond butter, stevia, peanuts. And so we're not going to focus on the bars as much because a lot of the allegations are about the powder. But based on that alone and reading that, both Kevin and I, our spidey sense really went up because these were anonymous claims on the internet and that all these people had suffered all of this harm made by this influencer. And from a scientific standpoint, this is where we're going to discuss whether or not it's scientifically sound that this could happen from these ingredients, So the first thing I want Kevin to do and describe for you guys and explain is, Kevin, what is fiber? And then after we explain what fiber is, we're going to delve into the toxicology assessment that was done by a third party on these products.
1: Yeah. So fiber is like a sort of umbrella term. And so we typically think of it, as either naturally occurring within food or isolated and maybe synthetic and added to a food like a bar or uh, in a supplemental form, like you'll see gummies and powders and things. And so the fibers generally are called fibers because they are indigestible, meaning that the enzymes that we have in our small intestine, so higher up in the gut, where you typically absorb nutrients, don't break them down all that well. Um, But really, they're just long chains of the same uh, monosaccharides that you can normally digest, but they have uh, typically a beta linkage between them. And so our enzymes only recognize alpha linkages. So that gets into all the chemistry. But basically... uh, the fibers can't be digested. And then so they make their way into the large intestine, and then they make their way out of you as part of your feces. And some of them can be fermented in the gut to form uh, short chain fatty acids and gases. And so different fibers do different things. So the fibers that are in foods are often different than the ones that you also find isolated and included in products. So foods contain most of what we eat in foods is cellulose. You also get beta-glucans, and you get other plant gums and hemicelluloses. And then in the uh, products, you often see things isolated. So a really common one that even medical doctors, cardiologists probably know about is psyllium husk fiber, because it's uh, very viscous, can help lower cholesterol. And you also get things like inulin and uh, soluble corn fiber and other oligosaccharides that are increasingly used in the food supply. So just to help folks think about it, we have all these different types of fibers. And so they're often on the label as being soluble versus insoluble. And that's sort of an old school labeling scheme. But their physiological effects are often de- determined by uh, how viscous they are and so whether they form a gel in the GI tract that can sort of bind up nutrients and slow down digestion or how fermentable they are. And then there's also things like their particle size, and coarseness that uh, fiber can actually, one of the ways it can help you poop more is actually like at a micro scale level, irritating to the GI tract, which causes water to be secreted into the GI tract and it increases your stool weight. So most of what we think about fiber wise, historically in the field, you get uh, fiber having some sort of laxative effect. You get fiber as a uh, kind of food for your gut microbiome, where there's a lot of research going on into how that uh, impacts our health. There's also a lot of interest in um, fiber for lowering blood cholesterol and glucose. I think you talked in a previous episode about how fiber lowers blood cholesterol by uh, sort of binding up bile acids that would normally be reabsorbed and then uh, leading to their excretion in stool. And then the liver kind of sucks cholesterol on the blood to produce new bile acids. So vials form from cholesterol in the body. And so you get some fibers, particularly the viscous gel forming ones, have uh, a... Cholesterol lowering effect, and they also can slow digestion down a little bit and uh, lead to reduced postprandial blood glucose levels and uh, postprandial triglyceride levels. And then there's also an effect of calcium or on of fiber on calcium absorption and retention in the body. And so If you look at the FDA, they've done a lot of work in the past five years or so in defining what qualifies as a dietary fiber and really making sure that it has to have a physiological health benefit uh, to be determined fiber on the label. So just by definition, if it's getting put as fiber on the label, it's mostly there because there's some evidence of it having a beneficial physiological effect. That doesn't mean there can't be any bad part of fiber, particularly uh, most folks will know that sometimes fiber or fiber containing foods can cause gases. I think there's, you know, colloquially a a known effect of eating too many beans. There's certain carbohydrates in beans that can kind of be highly fermented. And then uh, some of the isolated purified fibers that we'll talk about are are known to be fermented a lot in the gut. And going from particularly low intakes to really high intakes and not doing like a stepwise dose increase can cause some GI discomfort associated with that fermentation. And if you take super, super high doses of fiber, particularly if there's something wrong with like the GI tract movement, in, in patients, there's concern adding too much fiber kind of is stuffing up the tube, basically, and, and can cause a blockage. But that's in really rare cases. There's not a whole a whole lot on uh, you know real harms coming from eating fiber, typically in the literature.
0: And so, um, it's important to note that. So this case, as I just mentioned, is built on these you know, alleged claims made from this influencer about the harm from both the diet and these protein powders. And so um, F-Factor states that out of 174,000 distinct orders, they had only 50 health-related complaints, which is less than uh, 0.03% of total orders. And these were essentially self-resolving with people discontinuing the high-protein, high-fiber powders. And so when you look at some of the claims made about the diet and the protein powders, they're kind of shocking. I want, Kevin, your, your thought on whether or not, you know, the one that claims that individuals on the F-factor diet and the products had, it caused severe damage to their colons, or it caused a heart attack, or destroyed the intestinal lining, or contains high levels of arsenic. What are your immediate thoughts about fiber causing any of those?
1: Yeah, it it comes up as completely implausible. and, And, you know, for the most part, just overwhelmingly implausible. I can think of cases where somebody, you know, if you're in the midst of like a severe ulcerative colitis flare up or something, you know, we typically put folks on a low residual, low fiber diet to not have any indigestive matter touching the colon and exacerbating it. But, you know, that's sort of adding a sprinkling of something that exacerbates an already really messed up situation to begin with. And so there are definitely contraindications to fiber, but there's, they're limiting intake on top of an already existing bad situation, not them causing it themselves. So, you know, the colon one in particular, there would have had to have been something terrible going on. And it wouldn't, again, wouldn't be specific to the F-factor diet plan. It would be like any fiber, and actually the fibers in the F-factor diet plan are mostly highly fermented um, and, and not like, the physical roughage that's going to damage and irritate the intestinal lining like we're often restricting. And so causing heart attacks and things like that, there's not one documented case that I'm no, aware of. Absolutely not. Happened. As a cardiologist,
0: I can say that we have no documented research or literature that ever supports a high fiber diet or high fiber protein powders can cause a heart attack. You've listened to my cholesterol series You will know that all major cardiovascular medical organizations, including our guidelines from the AHA and ACC and our recent uh, American Society for Preventive Cardiology clinical practice statement, recommends eating a diet filled with dietary fiber, fruits, vegetables, whole grains, legumes, all sorts of fiber, and this can include dietary fiber in the form of a protein powder as well, but eating a high fiber diet to reduce atherogenic lipoproteins to prevent heart attacks. So yeah, totally implausible. So we start with, you know, I I read all of those claims that are in the defamation suit. And then, you know, the, the podcast covers some of these. And so I think what's really interesting is that you know, Kevin and I being huge fans of fiber and using fiber clinically with patients regularly, and I just read to you also the statement from the American Academy of Nutrition and Dietetics recommending fiber. You know, there are very, 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 very few scenarios in which an individual would be recommended to limit fiber. Because even with gastrointestinal disease, such as ulcerative uh, colitis or Crohn's, these individuals are actually recommended in when they're in a remission phase, they're recommended to eat dietary fiber. And so it's just eating a high fiber diet is essentially recommended, as we mentioned, with every major medical organization. So, with regards to these protein powders, so you know, we wanted to investigate in and look into these protein powders because, The reason, too, that Kevin and I were also really interested in this topic is because there's been this movement on social media. There's something called the naturalistic fallacy, which you've all heard me mention before, which that anything that's slightly uh, processed uh, or anything that isn't just a whole food is not good for you. And the reason why this misinformation when it comes to nutrition is harmful is because not everyone is able to obtain all of their protein intake necessarily from whole foods. And of course, we all recommend eating fruits, vegetables, legumes, whole grains, and if you eat animal products, eating lean protein and things like that. But especially where we see lots of patients who are vegan, um, you know, the emphasis on protein, sometimes we don't think there's an emphasis enough. And protein is incredibly important in addition to strength training, meeting um, protein requirements to prevent sarcopenia, reduce fracture risk. We see this in the vegan community. And so Kevin uses medical nutrition therapy as a registered dietitian all the time. And there are certainly indications for people including protein powders in their daily diet. And I know that I use protein powders and so do you, Kevin.
1: Yeah, no protein powders are, you know, especially for like a lot of your patients are Folks who are choosing to live a vegan lifestyle and so protein powders can kind of fill in gaps and just protein fortified products in general can make uh, day-to-day living, you know, hitting protein adequacy really easy. Uh, it's hard to bring around tofu and soy products all the time and <laughs> get tired of lentils and it's not the easiest on the go stuff. So just out of convenience, it can be quite helpful. But, you know, even some of the best evidence we have for medical nutrition therapy for, uh, weight loss and uh, treatment of obesity is using meal replacement powders, which are basically a protein powder with a multivitamin and some added fibers sprinkled in. And so we have people drinking these sorts of, you know, formulations all the time. And that's not to say that they're magic or anything, but they're a tool in the toolkit of, Uh, a lot of registered dietitians out there uh, helping folks to switch up their diet to address different medical conditions.
0: So you can imagine if you're listening right now, you'd be probably just as equally perplexed as Kevin and I with regards to, I cannot believe that this diet has been so attacked, this dietary program, given all of the scientific evidence we have. So then we figured out, okay, well, then the next step is, let's look into these protein powders. So as I mentioned before, I'll reiterate to so the protein powder with whey, the ingredients are organic whey protein, partially hydrolyzed guar gum, sunflower, lecithin. The plant-based uh, F-factor protein powder has pea and rice protein fermented with shiitake mycelia, um, and the partially hydrolyzed guar gum. And just from reading those ingredients, I immediately know, and I know Kevin knows as well, that these are standard protein powder ingredients that are used in protein powders and foods across the country. Very common. There's nothing at all shocking or abnormal about these protein powders. These are used frequently with our own patients regularly. There were claims of uh, high levels of arsenic and high levels of lead in these products. And so, We obtained the toxicology and risk assessment report, and it was done by a third party, and Kevin is going to take us through that.
1: Yeah, so this toxicological report looked at both uh, a hazard and kind of risk assessment. So hazard just being, is there anything that could possibly cause harm in it, regardless of dose, and then risk kind of taking into account whether it's likely that there's uh, a risk associated with uh, intakes of the ingredients at the levels that they're in the product. And so the way that this third-party company did it was to kind of break down whether there was low or high risk, or low, medium, or high risk. And so none of the products were flagged as high risk, where there was like obvious toxicological effect in the general population, the low and medium risk, low was anything that was pretty much established, safe history of use in human populations. and some of you might know that generally recognized as safe or grass intended use by uh, the FDA so anything that fell in that category was considered low risk and then uh, medium risk for anything that required you know special regulatory labeling um, and so pretty much in, in that instance the main ingredients that were medium were dietary allergens. So the, some of the products contain things like peanut flour and peanut paste and almond butter. So because they're an allergen, just like any food that contains those products, that could be potentially harmful, uh, for somebody who has an allergen. And then, um, the other medium items were cocoa and rice products that were in there. Um, and that's just because those, uh, like cocoa bean powder and, uh, rice protein concentrate and things tend to have higher levels of heavy metals like you mentioned again this is not specific to f factor this is just by the nature of those foods they naturally are typically grown in soils that contain lead and then they as plants will take up the lead Um, there's a lot of monitoring and safety stuff done by the fda uh, to limit heavy metal exposure and measure the amounts within those foods and then for the low, mostly everything was a safety categorization of low in the products. They have you know, a whey protein concentrate, the hydrolyzed guar gums, lecithin, all pretty normal things that are not a, you know, there's not a major ingredient component. Um, there are compound within them that raised a concern. There are a bunch of sweeteners as well. It's so like monk fruit and stevia. And then the the fibers come up as well as a low safety categorization, but there's a lot of soluble corn fiber and chicory root fiber. I think you said those were mostly in the bars, right?
0: Yes. Yeah. Right. Because just a reminder. So all of the ingredients, the allergen ingredients we we're discussing before were yes, yeah, ones we were discussing. That those are mostly in the bars. The protein powders. The source of fiber is the partially hydrolyzed guar gum. It's the other products, the um, bars, which aren't mentioned as much in this discussion, really. So that's why we're focusing more on the protein powders. But the bars have the, as you mentioned, the other standard forms of fiber, which are seen throughout the food industry, and they're very common.
1: Yeah. So these powders, basically, that ring up relatively low on the concern list, apart from uh, containing some ingredients that are a little bit more concentrated in heavy metals and then uh, containing you know, things like the hydrolyzed as a rich, a rich source of dietary fiber. So the toxicological report, unsurprisingly, kind of confirms that these are really typical ingredients that are used throughout the food supply. Um, and there's not like an immediate cause for concern when you look at them. The fibers that they're focusing on, so they kind of dive a little bit into it they focus more in their report on the inulin and chicory root soluble corn fibers, but as we said, those are more in the bars. The guar gum, um, they don't talk about a ton per se, but guar gum is like a pretty common fiber that's utilized throughout the food industry. And there's actually a big difference between they're using a hydrolyzed guar gum in this. So there's a lot of literature on guar gum, which is like super viscous when you add water to it to the point that it like you know, if we were adding it to a tube feed or something clinically, we'd be worried you're going to clog up the tube feed because it sucks up so much water, uh, similar to psyllium husk fiber. But then the hydrolyzed guar gum actually uptakes a little bit less fiber and becomes much more functional as an addition to food items. And so it, it it's like it you know, has some properties that you know, make the mouth feel of products taste better and whatnot and and feel better. Because it's slightly viscous, um, the hydrolysis reduces the viscosity of guar gum fibers. But because it's slightly viscous, you'll see in a a few of the studies that are out there that it's still at higher doses, like five to 10 grams per day, is able to lower postprandial blood glucose a little bit and lowers cholesterol, the LDL cholesterol levels a little bit, and also has an impact on Sort of regularity of stools, and so this is a, sun fiber is a really common fiber. The FDA did agree with in their re-evaluation of all the isolated fibers, they did rename it a fiber, suggesting it has physiological health benefits to it. But it's not one per se that tends to cause folks a bunch of trouble, other than the fact that the hydrolyzed guar gum is uh, a prebiotic fiber, which means it can be fermented, and so if you go from low intakes to really high intakes, uh, particularly without like sort of a stepwise increase, it's likely that you'll get some gastrointestinal symptoms that folks will often describe as unpleasant, like a little bit of bloating and gas, uh, maybe some belching. And then uh, if you go real high on it, you might have a little bit of diarrhea associated with it. But that is, you know, again, it's not specific to F-factor. It's kind of just normal additive in the food supply.
0: (laughs) No. Exactly. Normal with fiber. Even if you go from eating a zero fiber diet or a low fiber diet to eating a incredibly high fiber diet with whole foods, you will have similar GI upset. I mean, there are some people who can go from, I have some patients that go from zero fiber to, you know, um, eating a really high fiber diet and they tolerate it just fine. But You know, getting some gas or bloating when you start to introduce fiber into your diet, if you're eating a low-fiber diet and you go too fast is incredibly common. And like Kevin mentioned, this is not specific to F-factor. This is just common across the board. So one thing I really wanted you to touch on, because... Even anyone listening that isn't familiar with the FDA process, the way we evaluate and the food safety, even anyone that's listening, that here's the safety categorization of medium for the cocoa powder because of heavy metals, or medium for um, brown rice protein because of heavy metals. You know, anyone may be listening to this thinking, oh my gosh, medium risk with heavy metals. There's so much misinformation online about heavy metals, especially lead and arsenic. And these were some of the claims made about these products from this diet. And we see this online all the time. And if you guys recall on my podcast, I had the incredible food science babe who did an amazing job breaking down how the dose makes the poison. And she often does on her social media a lot, breaking down also the misinformation that comes around, fear-mongering with heavy metals and foods. But for Kevin, for anyone who's unfamiliar, can you explain what that actually means, and what the levels they found in this toxicology report represent, and how that is in a clinical context of when we're eating food normally.
1: Yeah, so heavy metals have been long been a concern in the food supply. They're considered a contaminant. They're not necessarily supposed to be there, but plants growing in soil will uptake not only the essential minerals that we need to consume but other minerals that are in the soil and so there's been a concerted effort for the past 50 plus years in the US and in other uh, countries to limit the amount of lead and arsenic and cadmium and mercury that is in soil to limit the amount that's in food we also get like lead for example there were used to be lead pipes and so our water had used to have a lot of lead in it and there's been a really a dramatic drop in uh, lead exposure over the past 50, 60 years, as there's sort of been uh, across all the ways that you can be exposed, big efforts to reduce those levels. Lead is a particular concern because of its impact on fetal brain development and brain development during childhood. So there is a big focus on reducing exposure in people who are capable of becoming pregnant and then in uh, young children as well. And so lead, we've seen a huge drop in it. And we have basically a lot of efforts to keep dietary lead exposure low, and we monitor it. So there's something called the total diet study that the FDA does, and they update it every few years, where you've got uh, estimates of how much lead is in food. And so they'll always update it. It sometimes catches news reports and sometimes doesn't. So almost always, nothing comes up as a big concern at this point. We're just monitoring in the background that's happening to make sure that when you look at the typical American diet that we're not exceeding the levels of lead um, that are estimated to be unsafe. And so even, I should put a little star on that too, because in toxicology, we're often uh, doing a lot of work to identify, usually through animal models, to identify what the lowest observable level that's associated with an adverse effect is, and then what the lowest level that observes no adverse effect at all. And we take that number and often put a safety factor of some sort in uh, and set an upper limit of exposure for humans. So we have a pretty precautious approach to these things. And so if you look at, you know, getting into the, the F factor, they kind of compare different international organizations have upper tolerance levels uh, of exposure. So the US FDA for lead, for example, is 12 and a half micrograms per day. Health Canada sets it at like on a milligram kilogram amount per day and so for an average adult it could be like over 200 micrograms so even if you compare country to country they can have uh various estimates for what like a tolerable upper intake level is and america's pretty aggressive about this and so that 12 and a half micrograms for example the powders that we're particularly concerned about had like 0.28 and 0.82 and 0.43 micrograms per serving. And it's kind of funny you said people aren't complaining about the bars all that much and they're making claims about heavy metal exposure, but the bars are a little bit higher in heavy metals because they contain a lot more chocolate added to them. And so chocolate ends up being a lot of beans and Root vegetables and things like rice end up being big sources of uh, lead and juices, too, where you might be concentrating the amount of lead. So juices, you know, several apples worth of lead. I think the last FDA total diet study, the thing that got a lot of it didn't even get that much press, but what was highlighted by the FDA was that lead was present in 15 percent of the samples that they looked at the highest amount being 63 micrograms uh, per kilogram of food, but it was really sweet potato based baby baby foods that were some of the highest and, and biggest concerns. And so little babies where the brains are developing you want to limit lead as much as possible um, but these you know these protein powders and whatnot would fall in the low to medium sort of lead exposure at, but nowhere near you'd have to be eating a huge amount of these products to be getting above the, tolerable upper limit that's set by the FDA which already has a big safety factor kind of worked into it.
0: Right, Kevin, can you give some comparator food so say like for certain fruits that are just fresh fruits or vegetables their lead content that you got from the FDA document?
1: Yeah, so this is just a reminder this is the total diet study and so for example one of the things that came up that I thought was kind of funny almost was that as one of the higher lead sources was Low calorie ranch salad dressing came up as uh, having a significant, like an average amount of lead of 13 micrograms uh, per kilogram of food. So it was one of the highest uh, lead containing foods that was tested. And so nobody's eating a kilo of low calorie ranch dressing, I hope. A kilo of low. Yeah, Uh all the values that they put out there are parts per billion. So it is uh, micrograms per kilogram of food. But so, I mean, you can still hit 100 grams of of, uh, ranch dressing is not a crazy amount to consume per se. And so that would be something like 1.3 micrograms of lead. So still quite a bit more than what you're getting in in these products, for example. And so you'll often find in these that the rice-based foods and tubers, like those sweet potato-based baby foods, are coming up with pretty high levels of lead on average. And there's quite a bit of variability because the soil that they're grown in is a big determinant. The, the concentration of the lead in the soil ends up being a determinant of the amount in the food. So yeah, I mean, and the, these things are, again, you'd have to be eating a ton of servings of the powders and a few servings of the bars every single day to reach that very conservative FDA upper tolerance, which is, for lead at least, which is a lot lower than uh, like you know, almost 20 times lower than the uh, Health Canada levels. And so there's no, just because you achieve that intake level doesn't mean we're expecting any negative effects of that. These are just really population guidance levels to reduce. If everybody ate this amount, we'd be definitely keeping blood lead levels low across the population as a whole. This is not a factor related per se. These are average values in food. So anybody who's out there, there's tons of, I mean, you know this, Daniel, the pea protein and rice protein mixes that are out there will technically contain higher amounts of heavy metals like lead. But the dose makes the poison and the intake recommendations that we have are already extremely conservative.
0: Well, so Kevin, we just discussed another paper that evaluated fresh fruits and vegetables, surveyed across you know, various different areas and how much lead content was incidentally found in those. And the example we can give here is raspberries. So what was that calculation?
1: Yeah, so they the paper says that fresh raspberries have about 12 micrograms of lead for one kilo. And so to put that into terms that actually make sense, a cup of raspberry is about 123 grams. And so that'll give you about, if you round it out, about 1.5 micrograms of lead per cup serving of raspberry. So just that's, some, I think, some nice Perspective on um, one that the the amounts vary a, a good bit if you look at some of the values that are out there reported. But if you're going to say that like avoiding protein powders and st- uh, serving of these protein powders is like really important because of the heavy metal content, then you also have to start saying that all these fruits and vegetables are things that you should be avoiding. And so. The, the, the take-home message is that the dose makes the poison, you're going to eat some lead in the diet because there's lead in everything, and there isn't any recommendation from any authoritative health body saying to avoid these otherwise healthy foods because there are lead components, because the average American diet still leads to very safe intakes of lead. Exactly.
0: Thank you very much for clarifying that. And then the second concern that was raised was arsenic. So do you mind going through that data?
1: So arsenic is something that is found in foods. It's also pretty high. It's, you know, rice and things like that. It's just like other heavy metals. It uh, tends to show up in these grain foods, but it also shows up in seafood where it can bioaccumulate. And It's something that we are concerned about because it's a carcinogen. And so it's known that long-term exposures can increase your risk of things like skin and lung cancer and also bladder cancer. And so we definitely want to limit the amounts that we're exposed to. And again, diet's only a partial determinant of exposure, just like all heavy metals. They're coming from other uh, cosmetics and uh, other occupational health exposures. And so diet's a, a partial determinant of our of our uh, total arsenic exposures. But so because of the rice that's used in some protein powders, There are claims that come with the arsenic exposure mainly. And so if you look at the numbers that are reported in the toxicology report, for well, if I guess first for arsenic, the reference dose or the upper kind of dose from the U.S. EPA is 24 micrograms per day. So we're trying to stay below those limits. And then if you look at the powders, the unflavored vanilla or chocolate, they contain per serving anywhere from... uh, 2.86 to 4 micrograms per day. And so again, they're a partial determinant of your total arsenic intakes through the diet. And uh, this is actually, I think the arsenic one is a better example where the total upper limit, it's, it's really a small fraction that it would be contributing to. And so, yeah, I, again, it's like kind of the same story as it was with lead where it's the dose makes the poison. And diet contains a bunch of contributors to total arsenic and total lead and just all of our heavy metal exposure. And these products are a little bit more concentrated than some foods that we're eating throughout the diet, but you can find plenty of examples of foods that are otherwise healthy that people eat on an everyday basis that uh, contain similar amounts of them. And you'll hear, you know, there's legitimate efforts at a population level to reduce the amounts of these in foods, but that's also largely because we're trying to make sure that infants and pregnant people are not exposed to excessively high levels of them. Uh, But for the average adult eating F-factor products or any other product made with a rice protein concentrate, these are well within normal limits that you would be exposed to that are considered safe. And one thing to point out here is that these are levels related to chronic uh, exposure and risks from chronic exposure. But if you're going to claim that a product is causing you acute toxicological effects based off of the heavy metals in it, the doses become even much higher. start to see enough accumulation in the body that you experience uh, some acute effect from it. So I don't think anybody is claiming with these nutritional supplements or whatever that they had one dose and then they had an immediate sickness coming from it because these, again, these upper limits that we just quoted are chronic, everyday exposure, assuming basically you have a lifetime of exposure at these levels, you often have to get 10 to 100 to 1000s of times higher intake to eat just the single dose of it and immediately feel a response.
0: Right, even to just eat a single dose, which as you mentioned, the limits that um, we described are even set with a huge wide safety margin. Yeah. And none of these products come anywhere near that. So What's your overall take of the toxicology report?
1: My overall take is I feel bad they paid for this because it's (laughs) it's what I would have said to them. Pretty much, you could have submitted me a nameless protein powder supplement and said it can. It's a chocolate flavored rice and pea protein, and I would have been like, "Oh, in and it's got some added fiber to it." And I would have said, "Oh, in theory, it might cause somebody gas, and people are probably going to be." You, know, you could write a headline about the heavy metals in it, but uh, the intakes would still be well below what you'd expect. It's kind of crazy that if, if there was a podcast about, you know, the broad trends in the food industry to having more fermentable fibers added and more um, rice-based protein supplements, I would make that would make slightly more sense to me. But the fact that it's just zoning in on one single product, and then these sort of outlandish safety claims with them is just sort of wild. Because again, this toxicological assessment could be washed when repeated for dozens of other products out there that have a chocolate flavor and are using a rice protein supplement.
0: Absolutely. And really just nothing that we would scientifically expect any differently. Like, when you hear someone eats uh, something high in fiber and they have some gas or bloating that is just very well known in the scientific literature, it doesn't mean that you are uh, you can't eat fiber it just means you need to introduce fiber into your diet more
1: solely. so I think it's also really important to point out like this toxicological assessment report they're not sending samples off to measure anything de novo and so you could argue you know good faith argument that they're maybe there was something you know special in these products, like a contaminant or whatever. But with that sort of thing, we would expect like an outbreak. There would be dozens of cases. And so we recently saw this happen with Daily Harvest, with their lentils that were causing, they were putting people in the hospital, uh, with like an acute liver failure, and they're going to the ER with it. But you saw dozens and dozens of those cases, and it got picked up. And the local health departments were communicating to the FDA and CDC, and there was eventually a recall of the products. and And that's how you normally expect these things to happen. So I think it's just important to call out like there is not an outbreak associated with these things, and and the only reports that are being talked about are from like a single Instagram account with not any clear medical cases or coroner reports or anything coming forward, uh, despite having made the New York Times. And so now that we're just having finished this whole daily harvest thing, we have an acute example of how an unknown agent caused an outbreak in a pretty popular product, and we saw the response to it and recalls and all the normal processes happen. And so... There's not really any reason for me to believe at this point that like there was a lot issue with a single contaminant that caused an outbreak. These are like isolated concerns that have been raised over the course of a couple of years, it seems, that are, are just kind of spotty and in no way causally related to the product from any evidence from the basic toxicological assessment or just the pattern of, uh, of symptoms that people are reporting, apart from gas, which is what we would expect from eating a fermentable fiber.
0: So the New York Times has two individuals who did come forward because a lot of the claims that are made um, from the Instagram influencer, a lot of them were allegedly these um, anonymous posts. So we can discuss those too, because there are some of the claims that I mentioned before that I listed from the lawsuit are ones that we already discussed that we can't even think of a scientific um, mechanism that would explain it, the link at all. And they're anonymous. But I do want to discuss the two that came forward in The New York Times that we're aware of and explain clinically what, uh, what it means without knowing these individuals um, on an individual level, but why I think it's important to discuss how we determine correlation versus causation when it comes to symptoms and um, whether it's food intolerance or a food allergy. So the first one um, in the New York Times article said One said she was 32 and she went on the diet, and within a month developed abdominal pain so severe that she went to the doctor and to the emergency room and underwent two CT scans. She shared her F factor receipts and medical records with the Times. That's all that's shared about this. Now, okay, I don't know this patient clinically. That really doesn't provide a lot of information whatsoever. But this alone, that one scenario, there's so many things that can play a part of this, right? So as a physician, when you hear someone has symptoms of anything, you have to understand that correlation does not always equal causation, right? There's many different variables that can cause someone to have underlying abdominal pain that is severe that requires a CT scan. First of all, it is standard of care, just so everyone listening knows. Um, me, as someone that's done internal medicine residency and cardiology fellowship and spent more time than I'd like to admit in the emergency department on several rotations and consults, you know, if you go into the hospital complaining of severe abdominal pain, you're going to get a CT scan. This is just standard of care, yeah. okay, in the emergency department. And so there's not enough information even with this claim in the New York times to know, well, did this person have an underlying medical condition? That was the cause of this. There are a variety of conditions that cause abdominal pain that do not have to do with diet. Okay. So from that one individual case, you can't even state for sure that, you know, that their abdominal pain episode, which that's all the information we have about it was from the diet. Second of all, even if it was from the diet, even if someone ate, a ton of fiber they would never eaten fiber before they eat a ton of fiber and they get severe abdominal pain that is self-resolving
1: yeah I, I feel like there's a reliance in this anecdote you know it sounds like it has a lot of meat because it's like oh they had to get a ct scan but like when you go to the emergency room and you say complaining of extreme gi pain you know they just want to make sure they want to rule out that it's not an obstruction or something and,
0: appendicitis
1: yeah and you need a ct scan for that and so like it's that in and of itself isn't a dramatic medical conclusion it's like the first step of screening almost and so nobody's doubting that if you were to eat like a bunch of these bars and you're on a low uh, fermentable fiber diet and you start eating 40 60 grams that you might have like significant GI distress associated with that because most Americans, I think for background information, are like eating about 14 grams of fiber a day. Most of that is cellulose, which is not fermentable. And so you're on, and recommendations are about 35 grams of fiber per day, and you're getting sort of a little bit of fermentable fiber in that. So the idea that you go from eating very little fiber to eating pure doses of an isolated, highly fermentable fiber that is just, uh, you know, even somebody with a great GI tract, no IBS is going to feel a lot of flatulence and some pain with that. And that's the other thing we don't know about this patient. If they have some sort of background GI condition associated with dysbiosis, that then dumping uh, an unknown amount of this fiber into might have worsened the the gas and the GI pain that comes with that. But as you said, it's, it's self resolving. There's not like, you know, the person didn't lose a colon or anything from it, it's uh, just gas pain that probably felt really bad in the moment. The person rightly went to the ER just to get make sure nothing else was wrong. And then we don't really know what else happened.
0: Exactly. So we have no clue what happened. They could have found some other underlying pathology that we don't know. This could have been self-resolving. We have no idea. The second claim in the New York Times is someone who said that after eight months of drinking the um, F-factor powder, she developed excruciating red spots that required biopsy. Both these women said symptoms disappear when they stop the diet. So if this individual had red spots, that could potentially be something related to if she had a whey allergy or some sort of intolerance. And that is common with these ingredients that we see. Actually, it's not incredibly common, but with these ingredients, when it comes to side effects of people who do have some sort of intolerance or allergy to these foods, that is nothing shocking at all. If this person has a whey allergy this would occur if they ate any other form of whey protein. It's not specific to this kind of protein based on the toxicology analysis we just discussed.
1: Yeah. Red spots are not in another sort of uh, skin manifestations are not uh, unheard of. They're relatively common in the allergy world. And so it's it doesn't usually make it to the New York Times, but but usually, you know, people show up to clinic all the time for allergists and their advice to try exclusion of a specific ingredient as part of an overall comprehensive allergy assessment. The, I mean, it could also be, we have no idea, like, was this, <laughs> did this person get some contaminant in their way? Like, as far as like, did it was it expired? Was it, they scooped their hand in and got some bacteria in it? And so there, there's so many reasons why somebody could be having a so reaction many. to a food that Uh, And also, when things happen where I was doing this, something manifested months into using it, and then I stopped it and it went away. You don't have a control group there. Like it's just an anecdote, and that's not to discount the reality that they had symptoms, but it could have been they were also doing some eating something else at that time or exposing them reasonably to something that they were having a reaction to that also happened to be removed from their diet or uh, just their total exposure around the same time that they stopped the product.
0: So now those are the only two public claims that I've been able to find that were in the New York Times. I've yet to see other ones. I could be wrong. They could be out there. But so far, those are the only two public claims I've seen. And this started in 2020. And so it makes sense why this suit is going, uh, why the judge agreed to allow this suit to go forward. Because the following claims I'm going to tell you are Quite shocking. And from a scientific standpoint, we are talking about from a scientific standpoint, based on the literature, whether or not these are plausible or we've ever seen them before. Okay. Directly from the court case. So some of these claims, as I mentioned, are just absolutely Shocking. And so, uh, from the court case, the defamation case, one of the other claims was that the influencer had stated she had evidence that someone died as a result of consuming the F Factor products. So, Kevin, walk us through what would happen if someone actually did die of these products uh, and how does the FDA's involvement in death from products, how does that usually go? And additionally, what is the likelihood that someone could die of eating a high-fiber diet. I can answer that quickly. Nothing in this world is impossible, but I will say for the record that it is incredibly, incredibly rare, and Kevin will give you the exact clinical scenario in which that could possibly in a hypothetical scenario occur. That being said, he's also going to walk you through what would actually happen from a regulatory level if this occurred. Okay, Kevin, go.
1: Yeah, so I mean, we talked about the daily harvest thing popping up, where there was that was like a clear cluster of uh, symptoms that people were having all over the country, and so that was a good example of how if if there was a product that's causing an issue, it typically is going to get reported, often to a local health department, which talks then with the CDC, who then talks with the FDA or the FSIS at the USDA, um, and and those are the major federal organization, or I guess like the chain of events going from local to federal, and the FDA can put pressure on companies to recall a product or kind of step in themselves to do some enforcement. And so, you know, if somebody died from a product, clinicians would be the ones who would be like looking at the cause of death and filling out the cause of death report and saying like whether this was likely due to a product for an individual case, and then that would get reported. And
0: cause poison control, you know, and exactly. there would be an entire investigation, correct?
1: Yeah, so it would, if it was like somebody died out of nowhere and it was reasonably suspected to be from a product, it's going to get reported to local health authorities and they might go up the chain. And often they're going to look for whether there's a potential cluster of cases that have been missed. And so if this product were inherently dangerous to the point that it was killing people, it would be something that would get picked up on a, a clinical level and then work its way up to like an FDA level. And again, as we saw with Daily Harvest, you know, this got picked up pretty quickly because it was people were having this rare liver failure. And so if somebody was dying, and this is where it's hard to assess this, because the claim that's being made by this influencer is not saying what they died of.
0: And it's also not even this is not one of the public claims. We haven't heard anyone publicly come forward for this. This was an anonymous claim. So we don't even have a public case to evaluate scientifically.
1: Yeah, and you would think that if, like, somebody died out of nowhere and people really believed that it was due to uh, eating this product, there would be family making a scene about this and telling local authorities and whatnot. And so I I don't think we're seeing any of that. But so we we had this little combo off-air about, like, okay, how could somebody die of fiber? And so they're...
0: Like, hypothetically, like, this episode, this is all about the science. So we wanted to hypothesize how could technically someone... And the off chance side fiber, we racked our brains. Go for it, Kevin.
1: <laughs> so in clinical dietetics, there's, you know, you might hear of the word like bezoar and there's something called a, a bezoar. I don't, I'm probably saying it overly
0: Bezoar. No, so we say it's, we say it in, um in medicine, bezoar is any sort of the ingestion of a foreign sub- substance that can cause, you know, some sort of blockage. So some of the ones that have been really famous and well-known in the media are people who eat couch cushions. These are ones you see all over the media. It's just essentially an obstruction caused by a foreign object.
1: Yeah, and so food can cause an obstruction. And it's particularly like really fibrous foods. I think persimmons are a common cause of it. And so they're called phytobizors. And you can find case studies of folks, they typically have some other complication in the background where they have like gastroparesis. So their their intestinal tract is not moving and contracting normally. And then if you put a bunch of fiber into that, it's like stuffing an already stuffed tube in a sense. And if there's not medical intervention, You could theoretically come up with a hypothetical situation where somebody might die of that and you can find like rare case of fatal bowel obstruction secondary to a phytobezoar as like a case study out there but it's often a much older individual that has a gi tract that's not working appropriately and not having the normal rhythmic peristaltic contractions and then uh, the the more the fiber exacerbated something or the the, uh, fiber-rich food exacerbated something and so Clinically, we worry about this in the background for anybody who's got any sort of condition that impacts the contractility of the GI tract and the movement of stool long to not put extra fiber in there. And so there's neuromuscular conditions, there's things like gastroparesis, there's folks with other obstructions.
0: So just to clarify, so anyone with an obstruction is NPO.
1: Yes, they're not um,
0: eating at and <laughs> you, They're not eating at all. So it's not that we're just putting fiber in there. When people have bowel obstructions, we took care of these in medicine all the time so in especially in residency you have to manage them someone comes with a bowel obstruction most often it's from something like malignancy or it's from adhesions it's not from even a B zores are incredibly rare rare okay so and bezoars from fiber are even you know more rare there it's just it's it's not this is not a common thing to see bowel obstructions which we see in the hospital at the time are often caused from either adhesions postoperatively, from a surgical complication, from a uh, from severe constipation. You can even get a bowel obstruction, uh, which, as we know, fiber is actually helps with constipation. Um, or in individuals who have um, a tumor, so a uh, any sort of uh, malignancy. And when someone comes in with acute bowel obstruction, the first thing is NPO. They are not nothing by mouth. And then it's whether you're going to medically management or where there's going to be surgical intervention. So yeah, that's just for for just for clarification too.
1: Yeah, we're doing parental nutrition with them if they're going to be long term not able to eat most part. So yeah, I, this is just oh like a ridiculously rare thing. And again, it gets written up as a case study because it's so kind of bizarre. And so if somebody actually died of this, you would have a direct attribution. And probably like local hospital chatter and maybe a case study written up about oh, this person died of from a bizarre, like causally influenced or causally caused by these fiber containing products. And this is where the product, the type of uh, you know, phytobizar is typically like undigested food matter, like I said, persimmons, I think is a common cause of it. Or you would expect somebody to have taken like huge doses of an extremely viscous fiber, whereas the type of fiber that is used in these products is a partially hydrolyzed guar gum. And so, you know, not hydrolyzed guar gum is super, super viscous. And if you were to eat like 60 grams of it, I'd be a little concerned about a blockage. But, um, you know, the partially hydrolyzed version, it doesn't hold as much water. It's not as viscous. It's able to be fermented pretty rapidly. Usually the blockages would be caused by a non-fermentable fiber that can't be broken down by the bugs that are living in your gut. So we're in the realm of like, it is just Wildly implausible that this would have happened, and again, we didn't get a cause of death in this claim. It seems quite flippant, and uh, if there was reasonable cause-effect relationships, which the bar for that's pretty low in, in clinical medicine, if you suspect that somebody died of something and there's no obvious cause of it, and they're eating a you know they're eating something strange, you would probably further investigate it. I and mean, you can speak to that more, but. I I would just, the the lack of information about this and somebody just flippantly saying, oh, somebody died of this product in the context of a litany of other kind of spotty health claims where there doesn't seem to be a clear pattern of things just is real sus.
0: Absolutely. And there's no, yeah, and there's no one coming forward to make this claim publicly. So we haven't heard anything uh, with regards to this claim from an actual individual's family or um, with regards to the regulatory agencies. Okay, the next one the influencer falsely stated that should evidence that the F-factor powder caused a heart attack. I will take this one. I am very, 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 very well-versed in cardiovascular disease as a cardiologist. And there is no plausible reason that eating dietary fiber, whether it's from a protein powder or whether it's from whole foods, would cause a heart attack. I cannot even, There are. there is no case study that I can even think of that would make this rationale. And why is the reasoning for that? When you think of a plaque rupture for a heart attack, an acute plaque rupture is due to either thrombosis from an acute thrombosis uh, from a plaque rupture, so the plaque's breaking off, or you can see thrombosis that occurs in something that's more rare, like SCAD, um, but most commonly, it's caused from plaque rupture from someone who has coronary artery disease. And then coronary artery disease—how do we get coronary artery disease? Well, if you listen to my cholesterol podcast, you will know that there's uh, the atherogenic lipoproteins that build up. They get into the endothelial lining, to the arterial intima. They build up. They cause plaque. As plaque grows. Certain factors can make this worse, such as hypertension, diabetes, but you don't necessarily need hypertension or diabetes to have an MI either. You can be just sitting there doing absolutely nothing and the plaque could rupture, or you could be walking, the plaque could rupture, you can have a heart attack, and then that is what causes most commonly a heart attack. And so diets high in fiber reduce atherogenic lipoproteins and make you much less likely to develop a heart attack. And this is well demonstrated in our cardiovascular disease literature. We know from both trials in primary prevention of cardiovascular disease, as well as secondary prevention of cardiovascular disease, that eating a higher fiber diet helps to reduce your risk of developing heart attack. So I will say that this one is implausible. And there is no individual that's come forward to claim that they are the victim of the heart attack from fiber And so, you know, if someone does come forward um, and say that this was actually them, because as I mentioned, this was one of the anonymous claims, this would be a, as Kevin mentioned, a case study. And it's highly implausible, again, as I mentioned, because the fiber, there is no mechanism in which fiber itself would cause a heart attack. And so correlation does not equal causation, and it is highly implausible. Dietary fiber helps you to reduce your risk for heart disease. So next up is, oh, this is, wow. F-factor powder causes anxiety and panic attacks. Do we have any data that dietary fiber causes anxiety and panic attacks? No, there, the answer is no. There's no research that shows dietary fiber causes anxiety or panic attacks.
1: Somebody with anxiety and panic attacks might be more predisposed to seeking out diet products and using them, but that's reverse causality. Like, I would be surprised somebody who used this product at some point had an anxiety or panic attack, but it wasn't caused by it.
0: Exactly. This one is great. Let's see. The influencer falsely stated the F-factor product causes severe damage to users' colons. What? I know. It's and so this also, again, as I mentioned, the only two verified claims we have were the two in the New York Times that we've already discussed. So, this one was another one that was an anonymous, you know, uh, thing that the influencer used to promote this. And I know that every gastroenterologist I work with would pass out if they saw that because we all know that eating dietary fiber is a huge portion of colon health, yeah, reducing risk for colon cancer, keeping your colon healthy, and so. I, I don't see the plausibility of that either
1: no I mean I think we've talked about this with you before like apart from an acute like flare-up of ulcerative colitis it's extremely severe we tend to tell people to avoid any residue we put them on low residue diets to just not have physical things moving into the colon that might like agitate the already like highly inflamed uh, sensitive tissue but to say that no, nobody's arguing that the fibers are triggering that it's just the medical nutrition therapy to restrict any, uh, you know, just for the discomfort and aggravation of an inflamed colon to not have much going in there. But yeah, unless this person was like in the midst of an extreme ulcerative colitis flare up, and then they ate some F factor for some reason. And that made it slightly worse. If that was the claim, I'd, I'd have to believe it. But uh, the, the idea that it's causing uh, like just a healthy person turning their colon into mush is not, not likely.
0: Exactly. So, I mean, listen, we're circling the drain here with these claims because they are so implausible in so many ways. I, I don't know. I'm going to give my my medical and scientific, based on what we have in front of us, my medical and scientific opinion and from the data we have, I would say based on these individuals are not my patients and none of these claims besides the two in the York times have been verified. My claim would be both the powder and the uh, bars are safe and healthy. I would literally order and eat both of these myself. I will. I'm going to definitely get the plant-based protein powder. Um, I will order it and pay for it myself. And it looks delicious and it's high in fiber and high in protein. And then the diet in and of itself, the actual F-factor diet, also just the recommendations. I mean, we already went through. It is, it is undeniable that these the basics of the program and the recommendations for eating uh, 30 plus grams of fiber per day are in line with all major medical societies. Yeah. Kevin, what's your take?
1: <laughs> My take is I'm just amazed that this is something that we're having a podcast on. I know! <laughs> I like, you know, there's all these isolated claims. There's no, uh, at, you know, primarily funneled by one person who may or may not have a vested interest in this. But you would expect there to be almost like a mini outbreak if there was a contaminant or something in this that was really a huge issue. But I, what I said in the beginning, fiber causes some people some gas and that causes some GI pain, particularly when using these fermentable fibers. And that's, you know, Pretty much looking at the ingredients than what you would expect to be a, a common, quote unquote, side effect for folks. But it's not specific to this brand at all. It's what I would tell literally every patient when I'm talking to them about fiber in food and just thinking about how to increase your fiber intakes or for those that medically need to decrease their fiber intakes, what to avoid. And uh, these products are pretty normal. I don't know how we have an entire podcast on that. I
0: know. I cannot believe we had an entire podcast about this. Like literally we had to do an entire podcast defending fiber. Unbelievable. I literally would order these, the plant-based protein powder because I'm vegan and I, it it looks great. I mean, 20 grams of fiber and 20 grams of protein is fantastic. Um, I would order that. I would eat it. I would have no problem having my patients use it. And listen, we're just giving our uh, medical and scientific opinion on what is out there currently. And, you know, we just don't want there to be fear-mongering over fiber. And so eating fiber is good for you. Um, eating protein powders with fiber is safe and shouldn't you shouldn't be scared of it. And that is really what we're trying to get across, especially because as I was mentioning before, so You Tanya is an RD that's been recommending high-fiber diets for quite some time. And the the entire reason why this was so shocking to me was that of all diets for people to come after, a high-fiber diet was mind-blowing to me. There are so many worse diets on Instagram. Her diet literally falls in with the medical recommendations that we recommend our patients. I recommend higher fiber to my patients.
1: Yeah. And I think to tie this back into the point of your podcast in general, like you're you're more than willing to call out the litany of, you know, kind of predatory testing and supplements and diet plans with no evidence, whether it's pushed by an RD or by an MD or just a random influencer. And so this is like a good example of how to maybe be skeptical of some of the claims that you see out there yes. of like there are these isolated claims primarily made by one person. You'd have to believe in like a ridiculous cover-up that is occurring about this specific product line. The product line, it looks like almost every other product out there. And if you know the supplement and food industry, you know that there's like three suppliers of common ingredients that are sold to all these individual brands out there. And so it's so unlikely that it's not like Tanya's product is likely sourced from just a a supplier who only makes these things for her. There'd be a a system-wide outbreak of folks If this was truly due to a contaminant or something, or it would just be a spike in cases if it was a lot effect. And so coming up with how the products are supposedly causing all these problems, but only in a few isolated incidences and only related to this product line and no other product line in the industry with all the same ingredients. With
0: anonymous, the claims are anonymous without even people coming forward. You get on yeah. you
1: get deeper and deeper into like the Illuminati and conspiracy thinking as to like it how is- any of this is really true. And so, you know, I've always fall back on, you know, go see a physician, talk to a registered dietitian if you have specific medical concerns. Like, I'm not going to recommend this product for somebody with like, you know, irritable bowel syndrome, where this has a lot of fermentable fibers in it that might make that worse, but it's totally fine for somebody who has a normal functioning GI tract, doesn't have any issues, and is trying to supplement protein in their diet and some fiber.
0: You know, there are plenty of times that gastroenterologists, even some with IBS do recommend protein, I mean, fiber supplements for patients. We do in our, Angie does in our practice all the time for individuals, you know, even for someone with IBS or IBD. Uh, yeah, so I agree with you. And, and I think that it's also important to reiterate that uh, if you do eat anything, whether it's raspberries, you buy at the supermarket, or a new protein powder, if you uh, change your diet in any way, shape, or form, You should always be discussing this with your physician, especially if you have any sort of side effects. Anyone who's starting, especially changing their diet and going into a high-fiber diet from a diet that's not high in fiber— You know, we always recommend starting to increase fiber slowly, three to five grams of fiber per day, and trying to do it in a slow manner, in a stage-wise approach. And then if you have symptoms, you have gastrointestinal upset, if you feel like you have bloating, you have symptoms, see your physician, discuss with your physician, because there could be an underlying etiology that actually has nothing to do with the fiber, that is getting missed. And additionally, you could just be adding fiber too fast. And so talking with a registered dietitian is incredibly important as well. They can help walk you through the process as well. You should not fear fiber.
1: I think that's a good note to end on. Don't, don't fear <laughs> uh, fiber.
0: <laughs> don't fear fiber. <laughs> yeah. So that's our deep dive. This was really long.
1: It was. I mean, again, I cannot believe that there are court cases going on about claims of fiber killing people, but it is 2022. So I guess anything's possible.
0: (laughs) I know it's unbelievable. That was fun. Thanks, Kevin. Of
1: course. Thanks for having me on again.
0: And let everyone know again, where can they find you on social media?
1: Uh, I use Instagram and Twitter at KCKLATT. Feel free to reach out or ask any questions about anything we talked about in this podcast or nutrition in general big nutrition nerd. And uh, hopefully this uh, podcast, you know, can spread some uh, light on all of this. Why we have a top podcast now about uh, fiber and all of its ales, apparently.
0: <laughs> scaring everyone, scaring everyone a away from Kevin and I, our favorite, uh, our favorite nutrient. No,
1: I'm going to have some really fiber tonight just to celebrate this podcast.
0: Yeah, by the way, Kevin and I, just so everyone knows, all right, I am, Kevin and I both, eat Huel protein regularly that has protein and fiber. Okay. So this is, this is nothing that's bizarre to us. This is everyday life. And I eat 90, I eat 90 plus grams of fiber per day. And Kevin probably does too.
1: So. Oh yeah. Repeat pasta. We are uh, big time fiber fans.
0: (laughs) Big time fiber fans. Okay. Thanks, Kevin.
1: All right. Bye.
0: Thanks for listening to this week's episode. I would love to keep bringing you all of the latest health and wellness information and misinformation to debunk. So please do me a quick favor and leave a five-star rating review and share with a friend. Make sure to leave a comment about which wellness fact you'd like to debunk next, and I'll get to the bottom of it. Follow me on Instagram at nealbardo md and our podcast page at Wellness Fact Versus Fiction, and be sure to tune in next week.